0: Verse 11 to 20. The word today is Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 to 20. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that have been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Harnite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us. And despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem.
1: Good morning. Before we dive into the passage, let me add my voice to David's and talk just briefly about the retreat. We talk a lot here at Renewal about the way that God has blessed us, gifted us, and that there's a responsibility and a privilege for us to carry that out into the larger world. And yet there is that feeling I get oftentimes when talking with people like, okay, well, what does that actually look like? Uh, It's easy, I think, for us to sort of go out on a continuum. On one side, there are people who say, okay, now we need to have some kind of project or initiative or evangelistic crusade or something. And other folks on the other side are like, well, I guess it'll just sort of happen when it happens. And scripture says actually neither. Uh, scripture says it happens 24-7 every single moment of every single day that you step out into other people's worlds in the same way that God has stepped into your world. Jesus says it's it's love. You are marked by love. He doesn't say just love your family, he says actually love, your, love the strangers around you. He doesn't say love your friends, he says also love your enemies. He doesn't say love Christians, he says love non-Christians. And it's this kind of way that we very practically enter into other people's worlds expressing to them, this is how I have benefited and received from God and I want you to be able to experience that same kind of thing. That's what we're going to be spending time at our retreat talking about as a community because we wanted to take this opportunity, not just to have a special guest speaker, but we wanted to have this opportunity to see if we can move the ball forward a little bit more, understand practically what does this mission look like that God's brought us into. So let me urge you, please, please, please sign up. We want you there. You want to be there. If you're not signed up by Friday, you can't be. Okay? Take your phone out now. Make a little note. I I, I won't think that you're like, you know, looking up a score or anything. Please do that, and please sign up. Join us. We are continuing our study in the book of Nehemiah, as David read earlier, and we've just seen that it's a book that lays out a problem that the people of God had. It also lays out what they did about that problem. The problem was, just to review, that they got sideways with the Persian king who ruled over them. They started to rebuild Jerusalem's walls and gates, and some of their enemies claimed that they were rebelling against the king. And so the king allowed everything that had been rebuilt to be torn down, which left Jerusalem weak and vulnerable, left her unable to guard and develop her own culture inside the walls and then unable to actually engage well with the other nations around her. And we've been noticing that there are a lot of parallels between that situation 2,500 years ago and the situation of the Western church uh, as as we struggle to create a community that can effectively nurture faith, that can help develop faith in other people, that can prepare God's people to engage the broader society that she's part of. I hope that the study has been helpful to you, it's been helpful to me, encouraging, to realize that what we face is not unusual, to recognize that God has been able to help people, when, his people in the past when they've been weak, and therefore he'll help us when we're weak, but you start to realize that there's also a difficulty looking 2,500 years ago and that is that they're in a very different social location and they're in a different time period of what God is doing among his people. Just very obviously, the, 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 most, the clearest one is that there is a lot more that's physical and visible about their faith than there is for us. And other, they're located where? They're located in Israel, even more specifically in Jerusalem. And the problem that they're facing is physically, visibly obvious as well. The wall is broken down, and you can see it even if you go out and to look at it in the middle of the night. That's what Nehemiah did. He tells us twice in verses 12 and 16, he wasn't ready for anybody else to know what he was doing. So he went out to inspect the walls and gates during the night. And you think about that. Jerusalem does not have any streetlights at that time. They, they don't have any of those light-up advertising signs. They don't have light pollution that sort of bounces around. You can see from that. They don't, they don't have flashlights. Like how, how is he inspecting anything out there? Okay, well maybe, okay, maybe they lit torches, but he wants to be secret. Having this torch-lit procession around the outside of the wall, not a good idea if you're trying to keep this under wraps. Maybe the moon is out. Whatever is going on there, you realize it's really, really, really dark. and the problem is so obvious that you can't miss it in the middle of the night. It was physically visibly obvious. Which means also that the solution was physically visibly obvious. If the only thing that is separating you from enemies who hate your lifestyle is this large rubble field, well then the solution's pretty clear. Somebody's got to go out there, pick up those stones, and start stacking them on top of each other again. problem was visible then, the solution was visible then, in a way that our problems and our solutions are not. Church is not located in one geographical region. She's not called to erect boundaries between her and the other nations. Instead, what does God do? He sprinkles us throughout the rest of the nations. We are not called to build up a wall or, or set barriers between ourselves and other people. But we need some way of guarding our own culture some way of passing along God's values to his people, some way of engaging that larger society, some way of inviting them in to experience what it's like to be with the people of God. What does that look like if you live in the modern West? Maybe if we look at why Nehemiah feels compelled to do what he's doing, that that will help us. In verse 17, he talks to the people living in Jerusalem. He says, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. I just told you, here's why we need to build the wall. We need it so that we may no longer suffer derision. Derision is not a word I use regularly, it's not a common word. And you look at it and think, well, what, what does that actually mean? It means that you're mocked, you're ridiculed, held up to public shame. Other translations will talk about it as, so that we may no longer be a reproach, still also a little archaic, uh, or so that we will no longer be in disgrace. Disgrace is a good way for us to understand the English translation of the Hebrew word, that we may no longer be in disgrace. That's Nehemiah's goal. That's what's driving him. But why does having a wall built around you take away your disgrace? I'm still not sure I'm on board here yet. And this is one of those places where you need to see that that word derision, reproach, disgrace, whatever the English equivalent of, is is of it, that derision, disgrace, is tied to God's earlier judgment. And here you can track back through the rest of the Old Testament. And God said that if you will not listen to me, if you will not put my words into practice, I will bring disgrace on you. Here's one place where he says that in Jeremiah chapter 29 verses 18 to 19. He's talking about the people in Israel. He says, I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence, and will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach. It's that word that we've been looking at, disgrace, reproach. I will make them a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord. So it's going to be a disgrace, God says, when I drive you out of the land. There's a disgrace that will attach itself to you because you were not willing to listen to my words. And I look at that again, and I, I, you know, I'm feeling a little devil's advocate here. I think, okay, sword, pestilence, famine, that sounds utterly miserable. I don't want anything to do with that. That sounds like suffering. That doesn't sound like disgrace. Why is being driven out of the land a disgrace? Here's where you have to remind yourself of their identity and what their identity means these are the people of God they're the people who say we have a special relationship to God we're special to him we were in slavery in Egypt and he rescued us and when he rescued us he gave us our freedom but he gave us more than that he gave us his laws he gave us the laws before he ever actually brought them into the land of Israel he gave us laws so that we could live in a way that was superior to the way that anybody else was living. Superior lifestyle. A a, a community. We could build a a society that would allow our children to grow up to their full potential. It was a lifestyle where our relationships would flourish. A a, A lifestyle where our marriages would flourish. Where business dealings would be honest where they would benefit everyone it wouldn't be one person wins because another person loses instead this would be mutually beneficial a lifestyle where we would value people not just the bottom line where justice and mercy are blended together both are perfectly satisfied God gave us his laws so that we would have a community that was full of life and full of goodness it was a a community that you'd actually want to be part of And after he gave us his laws, he settled us in this place where he could put all of this into play. We had walled cities that could guard and protect this lifestyle that we were building from outside influences. But those walls had gates. And so we could engage with the surrounding nations, we could invite them in, they could experience what this was like. It was beautiful. And we didn't listen, we did not pay attention to his words. And so he sent us away, just like he said he would. And we're sent away in disgrace because we broke what he gave to us. We took this beautiful piece of art and we destroyed it. He handed us this immense inheritance and we squandered it. We won the lottery. We threw it away. We live now in poverty and everybody knows it. All you have to do is look at that wall over there that's all broken down. And and, and it's obvious we did this to ourselves. We disgraced ourselves. And then God gave us another chance. He brought us back into this land so we could try again. Only how do you go forward when the reminder of your disgrace is all around you and you see it every single time you look out the window of your house? And it reminds you that we can't be trusted. We can't be trusted with the best that God has, that when he gives it to us, we ruin it. And therefore, what's that tells us? It tells us that we have no future. You ever had someone say something to you like, look at what you've done. You'll never amount to anything. Think about that for a moment. Look at what you've done. You'll never amount to anything. How did they make that connection between what you've done and that you'll never amount to anything? What they're saying in that moment is, what you did defines you. That's your identity. And don't fool yourself. You'll never get away from that. Look at what you've done. You'll never amount to anything. That's what the Israelites see every time they look at that wall. It's not just a reminder of the past. It tells them about their future. It tells them that they're in disgrace. And then here's the gospel in the book of Nehemiah. God sent someone to remove their disgrace. Someone who saw their need and who had, a, had an idea of what could be done about it. He had an idea that would not simply remove their past disgrace, but would allow them to have a future as well, a future where they could once again live as the people of God, where once again they could live the way that God lives, the way that He interacts with other people, the way that He invites people to be loved and to experience who He is. Nehemiah comes with this idea of how they can have a future. But notice where this idea comes from. Nehemiah has not dreamed this up on his own. Instead, verse 12, he says to them, Then I arose in the night, he says to us, excuse me, Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. He says, I have an idea for Jerusalem. I want to take away their disgrace. But that idea did not originate with me. That idea is on my heart. Why? Because God has put it there. In other words, Nehemiah does not look at that wall and he says and say to himself, you know what, there's nothing we can do here. We broke it. We can't fix it. We'll just have to wait for God to bring revival. On the other hand, he doesn't say, let's manipulate God. Let's fix the wall and then God will like us again. Instead, he says, no, God put something on my heart. Why is that? Well, he's already told us in chapter 1. We looked at this earlier. Back in verse 10, we're t- he, he, he's praying, and he says that God has redeemed his people, that we're still special to him. And what does God do with his people? He puts things on their hearts. And so Nehemiah says to himself, God wants to revive his people. Why? Because he doesn't quit on them. This is how God revives them. He puts things on their hearts. Things for them to do because he loves them. Things for them to do that will remove the past disgrace, things that will give them a future. And it's this idea that drives Nehemiah. You remember, he had that successful career back in Persia. Highly placed official, trusted by the king, living in the cultural capital of the world. And he left all of that (laughs) to come to this broken-down city that's surrounded by enemies, it took a 1,000-mile journey to get there. It's 1,000 miles from the power and cultural center of the empire. Why did he do that? It's because he has a different definition of success than simply looking at all the things that he could have and all the things that he could enjoy in this world. You know that that's how people judge you success, right? They judge how successful you are by how much you have and how much you enjoy, by where you can go, what you can do, how many awards you have, how, many, how large the pile of gold is that you manage managed to amass for yourself. Those are the measures that the larger society says define success. Those are the things that are dangled in front of you, that you're told, this is what you should look for, this is what you should sell your life for. There's a problem with all of those things, what is that? They're only good in this world. They don't go beyond this world. I love the way that the actor, Denzel Washington, mocks materialism. He has one line that I think is brilliant. He says, I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. You wonder, is did, 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 you know, that original with him? Did he steal that? I, I don't care. I think it's a great line. I'll take it. I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. What is he saying? He's saying, what you pile up for yourself in your lifetime stays here. Every last bit of it. You won't take any more with you than someone who has a fraction of what you have. God's given Nehemiah a chance to have something else, something more valuable, more worthwhile, more meaningful than that successful career that he had. That king that he was serving could only give him things from this world, things that would stay in this world. And God has given him an opportunity to help build up the people of God, to remove their disgrace. Nehemiah has the opportunity to throw himself into doing what God is doing among his people. And that's work that is going to have eternal value because the people that he would impact would live forever. See, what you do for people, especially what you do for God's people, what you do with them, how you affect them, that actually is able to cross from this world into the next because people are the only thing that crosses from this world into the next. Real success then is tied to people, it's tied to what you do with them. So let me invite you, is that how you measure success in your own life? Are these the kinds of ideas that you have on your heart? The kinds of ideas that have eternal value? Things that you want to do that would impact other people? Things that you would do that would build up his church, that would remove the disgrace of his people? When you have downtime, when you're out in the car driving somewhere or or you're on the the train, you're daydreaming during a meeting, where where, where does your mind go? Does it go to these kinds of eternally meaningful things? Or does it drift more toward temporal things? Things that if you manage to get, you're only going to leave behind anyway. Or when you're thinking more intentionally, like the times when you pray. What occupies your prayers? Do you pray mostly for temporal things or do you pray for these eternal things? Nehemiah prayed for four months. And during that time, God put something on his heart that had eternal value, something that would last, something that was all about God's people. Do you pray for those kinds of things? Or think about the things that you talk about. What comes out of your mouth, especially in your more unguarded moments? Is it temporal, or eternal? Is it about things that last, or things that don't? I went to a health screening exam this past week for insurance purposes. And because I've done this before, I'm wondering in advance, okay, I, I, what, what kind of, in my opinion, inappropriate invasive questions am I going to get asked, that I'm going to be asked to sign my life away upon pain of death, That that really was true nurse was really nice, and she starts going through the questionnaire. Do you have a history of diabetes, a history of heart disease? Do you use tobacco products of any kind? No, no, no. We're cruising along, and I'm starting to be a little relaxed, thinking, okay, we're doing good, this isn't half bad. And then she says, true or false? You have never used tobacco products. I think, man! (laughs) There goes my score. I said, false. And she said, oh, what did you use? I said, I smoked a cigar. She said, when was that? Oh, uh, I don't know, I I was on a golf course with a couple guys, and I'm trying to minimize this, right, at this moment, it's not that big a deal, please. I'm also trying to jog my memory, because I really can't remember. She lets me hang out there. (laughs) And eventually I said, I don't know, like 10 years or so, and she looks at me sort of over the top of her glasses and says, 120 months, like, I I guess, maybe. (laughs) And she lets me off the hook. A little bit later, she's taking blood, and she says, so you play golf? I said, no, not really, (laughs) at least not well. I I, I went on a little bit. I said, who has three to five hours that they can just pull out of the middle of their week on a regular basis like that? I told her, I don't want to spend every waking hour working, but I do want to do something meaningful while I'm here on earth. What comes out of your mouth in those unguarded moments? Do you have that same kind of intention? What am I saying to her? I'm saying, I want my life to count. I want to do things that are worthwhile. And I'm not thinking short-term worthwhile like 30 or 40 years from now. I'm thinking long-term. I don't want temporal success. I want eternal success. I started thinking about these things when I turned 40 years old. It's odd. When I turned 40, I started thinking about death a lot. Not morbidly, not fearfully. But at least once a week, for about a year and a half, thinking about death. Why? Thinking about my genetics, realizing I'm at least halfway at that point. I've done half my life at that moment. I want these last years to count, which means I want to be intentional about what I do. I want them to be eternally successful. Think about a sermon that John Piper preached. It was a message back in the year 2000, it was a conference. Part of this message ended up in his book called Don't Waste Your Life. Sold over 650,000 copies, grabs people. In that message, he talked about a married couple that he was reading about in Reader's Digest, and the article was called Start Now, Retire Early. And the point of the article was to hold this couple up as a success. Piper's take was a little different. Piper summarized this couple by saying, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago. When he was 59, she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30 foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. And Piper goes on, he says, That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream. A nice house. A nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement. Collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Look, Lord, my shell collection. I've got a good swing. Look at my boat." That is such a vivid image. It's haunting. I hope it haunts you. Can you imagine what that would be like on that last day to hold up a box of shells before the Lord and say, see, this is what I have to show for the life that you gifted me, the life that you allowed me to live in the richest, most powerful nation that gave me more advantages than most of the world's population ever had. This is what I did with it. Aren't they pretty? Lord, I really like the pink one. Friends, please hear me. It's okay to play golf. Playing softball is great. I like collecting shells, and if you have a boat, I'll be happy to go out with you sometime. (laughs) But that is not the primary thing I want on my heart. I want something more. I want a lot more. I want something on my heart that's big that means something. I want something on my heart to to try even if I utterly fail because at least I want to try for something worthwhile. Don't you want that? Don't you want that with your family? Don't you want to enter into your children's lives, your spouse's life, with the hope that you would actually impact them for eternity? Don't you want that for your housemates? That what you say to them, what you do with them, that simply your presence shapes them, influences them, impacts them for eternity? Don't you want conversations with friends over dinner? conversations with your community group? Don't you want those to be times where you're helping people see and experience God a little bit more? Don't you want God to use Renewal Mainline to make a difference in this region? To move forward that gospel spreading movement that we talk about? Don't you want God to put something on your heart? Something that would make an eternal difference for someone Can you imagine what that would be like if we all had that? If we're thinking and planning together, if we're praying together, dreaming together for what God's put on our hearts. If that's what you want, look for it. Ask for it. Nehemiah spent four months praying for it. If that desire is there, that's a prayer that God will answer. Because God is more interested in using the gifts that he's given you than you are. He gave you those gifts so that they would make a difference. He didn't give you those gifts so that you could squander them, amass things that will stay here on this planet. He wants you to to use those, to watch them come to fruition. He cares more about you using your gifts than you do. And frankly, if you think about the alternative, who wants that? Do you really want a successful life on this earth? And have no passion for God, no passion for his people, no passion now, no possibility of impacting anyone for eternity. That is not why you're here. Ask him for more. Ask him to put something on your heart. Okay, that's point one this morning. Point two is a lot shorter. When you have something on your heart, how do you know that it's from God? Nehemiah is confident that it is, but how do you tell the difference between something that you feel strongly about and whether or not that actually comes from God? I had the chance to talk over the last couple of weeks with two different couples who are still very young in their relationships. And they're discovering what all young couples do. That is that the things that they took for granted as the right way to do things actually are not the only way to do things. That their instincts for how to do things have come from the families that they grew up in, and because they grew up in those families, they just think that that's the right way. It's the only way to go about that, and now they're discovering, no, different families have different values, different families have different ways of doing things. And that those things that you feel instinctively about may have more to do with your family of origin than they do with actually being written in stone in the cosmos. But then the question is, if you can be so convinced about little things, like how often you should eat dinner together, how do you know that what you feel on your heart to do for the church is actually from God, or or is that an extension of your family of origin as well? Or worse, how do you know that that's not something that you made up and that you're now claiming is from God? See, that's the problem with Sanballat and Tobiah. They're from a nearby area, it had some knowledge of God, but then it took and mixed in a lot of cultural elements, developed this syncretistic worship, so that these guys were very um, passionate about what they believed, but they're not worshiping God. You can see that when they jeer at God's people and despise God's people. That's why Nehemiah says in verse 20 that they have no portion, no right, no claim in Jerusalem, they have nothing to do with God's people. They're opposed to what God's doing among his people, which tells you that what's on their heart genuinely, authentically, passionately has nothing to do with what's on God's heart. So how do you know whether what's on your heart is from God or not? Five things in the passage that we're just going to go through really quickly. Number one, if it is from God, it lasts. It's sustained over time. It doesn't go away. Do the math here with me. If you think about the timeline, Nehemiah first heard some news, and he prayed about that for four months. Then he goes and he talks to the king, and the king greenlights him for this trip to Jerusalem. But then it's a thousand-mile journey. He's got to do some preparation for that caravan and get all the supplies together, has to shut things down. That's going to take some time. If you read the book of Ezra, you learn that Ezra took four months to do that journey. So now you've got at least, what, eight, nine months, the better part of a year at least. And this idea is still there in Nehemiah. And it's not there because other people keep reinforcing it. You know how that happens. You have a friend circle, and you spend time telling each other the same thing, and over time you get really excited because it's the only thing that you're hearing. That's normal. Nehemiah doesn't have that. He tells us twice that he told nobody what was on his heart. And so this is all between him and God. So pay attention, then, in your own life to those ideas that keep coming back to you, those ideas that nobody else needs to reinforce. Pay attention when you keep seeing that same need over and over and over again. Pay attention when you keep thinking, I wish somebody would do something about this. Or pay attention when your dreams keep going back to, I wonder what would happen if. Pay attention to the stubborn ideas that don't go away, that don't fade over time, and that will start to help you understand whether or not it's from God. Secondly, you can tell that what's on your heart is from God when you start to identify with the need that you see. Nehemiah heard from his brother and some other guys that the need in Jerusalem was dire and that weighed so heavily on him that he jettisoned everything that he had done in order to come out here. He's moving toward these people Because he sees the need. But it's more than just seeing it. He throws his life into the middle of it, and he owns it. Verse 17, he says to the Israelites, Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. He doesn't say that you may no longer suffer derision. It's not condescending. I didn't come here to be the the, the Savior. He says that we may no longer suffer derision. He's identifying himself with them in the middle of this made the problem his own. Or verse 20, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build we and us language. Barely been there three days. But he doesn't look at things as an outsider. He journeyed this far to identify with the people there. And so their problem is his problem. He's there to be part of the solution with them. It's another way that you can tell whether or not that thing that is on your heart is from God or not. You identify with that need. Third, you can tell that what's on your heart is from God when the more that you look into it, the more that you study it, the more that you investigate it, the more you realize it's a real need. And maybe even it's bigger than you initially thought. Nehemiah starts out on this inspection of the wall and he has an animal that he's riding. What's the implication he intends to ride the animal around the rest of the wall? It gets to this place where the animal can't keep on going. And it's almost as though Nehemiah was telling you, I knew it was bad, I heard it was bad, the reality is worse than I heard. See, if God puts something on your heart, the more that you look into it, the more that you investigate it, the more that you're going to see, yeah, that need is actually there in the real world, and that need is actually much larger than I initially thought it was. Now, on one hand, that could be demoralizing. It should be encouraging. Because you're now starting to see the world more accurately. You're starting to see the world the way it is. And when you're seeing the world the way it is, and that desire inside is what is helping you engage the real world, you realize, okay, this is probably coming from the Lord. Fourth, you can tell that what's on your heart is from God when other people also see it, when other people support it. See, if nobody sees it, nobody thinks it's important enough to throw themselves into it, then you've just learned that's probably not what God is doing at this time because God does not lead his people in opposite directions at the same moment. Nehemiah has been carrying around this idea that he believes is from God. It's lasted for months. He's reworked his entire life. He's investigated the need is legitimate. But if this is what God is doing among his people, then other people will join in. And so he shares what he sees, lays out a solution, says God's already laid the groundwork here. And the people respond by saying, we're on board. Verse 18, let us rise up and build. And they strengthened their hands for the good work. They see the need. They've bought into the solution. And they're affirming, yes, this is what God put on your heart. But apparently he's also putting it on ours now too. This really is from him. And last, if what's on your heart really is from God, you're going to get some opposition to it. Nehemiah came to help God's people build a society that was a beautiful society, a place of truth, of goodness, of beauty, and he's getting opposition. You think, that, that just sounds like a great thing. Why would, you, why would you oppose that? Sanballat and Tobiah are jeering and despising the Israelites, and you think, that doesn't make any sense. Israel is going to have a better life. Why is that a problem with them? And That's when you need to remember that Scripture tells us there's a war in the universe. That evil has set itself against God and that evil doesn't need a reason to hate. All evil needs is to be in the presence of godliness. So if God really has put something on your heart and you begin to act on it, expect some pushback not because you're out of line, not because you're obnoxious, but just because evil can't stand to see God's people get stronger. Expect the pushback. That's just normal. It's just evil being evil. Expect things not to go smoothly. Expect people to be upset with you. Expect that you're going to have to put your head down, you're going to have to persevere and move forward. Expect it and be encouraged by it. It's one of those things that shows that what's on your heart really is from the Lord. Expect it, because this is what it means to follow Jesus. See, Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. He's the one that had on his heart the desire to remove the disgrace from his people. And he acted on that desire. He relocated to this planet over a much larger distance than a thousand miles. And he did that so that he could identify with us in our disgrace. Didn't need to use we and us. He became one of us. He became part of who we are. Saul, our weakness firsthand, was not scared by it. Instead, he knew what to do. And so scripture tells us that he set his face at one point, like Flint, toward Jerusalem. Not to build up a wall of rock and stone, but to tear down the wall that we had built up between ourselves and God. And for that, he faced stiff opposition. Opposition that eventually would kill him but opposition that could not stop him. And so he rose from the dead. And now he says to his people, come, let us build up the church that we may no longer suffer disgrace. And when God's people hear him say that, hear that call, they strengthen their hands for the good work that he's called them to, and they agree with him. And they say, yeah, let us rise up and build. Let's talk to him now. Lord, I am so thankful that you did not despise us.